Hello, everybody, and welcome to another patron episode, bonus episode, Patreon, call it what you will. Drew, graceful as a swan, am I? How was that? Uh, delightful, like a pirouette. I am graceful like a gazelle. Why don't uh, why don't you tell our listeners what we're going to be talking about this month? It's a very interesting filmmaker. Wink. It is, um, and it's uh, it is an it is something that was not exclusive to the '80s, but obviously the '80s was a decade in which this guy worked a fair amount. And uh, the gentleman we're talking about is Alan Smithy, who is, of course, no gentleman at all. What is unique about Alan Smithy, Drew? Uh, Alan Smithy was a name that was created by the Directors Guild of America uh, because there was a dispute over a movie in which two filmmakers, both very good filmmakers, each wanted no credit on a movie. Neither one of them felt like it was their vision of the film. Neither one of them felt like their name deserved to be on it. And the Directors Guild had never encountered that before. So they looked for a pseudonym, something that they could put on it. Originally, it was Al Smith, but there was an Al Smith working. And so Smithy is not a common last it's I'm not even sure it's a last name but it became a last name for this and was the only acceptable DGA substitute for a director's name for a very long time when we were younger obviously we didn't know this uh at least at, not at, at not at the beginning uh I I was the Drew what was the film that inspired you to discover the truth behind Alan Smithy well, for me, it was not an Alan Smithy film, but an article about another movie that mentioned Alan Smithy, which led me down that rabbit hole of, wait, what the hell are they talking about? And and that was uh, Greystoke was actually the movie that led, led me there. And it was because on Greystoke, the screenwriter of that film, who great screenwriter, Robert Town, had developed that script and wanted to make it. And Warner Brothers said, well, it's a giant film. And before we can let you do that, you have to direct personal best so we can see how you do. And while he was directing Personal Best and he was having some issues with finishing it, Warner Brothers used that opportunity to leverage him and say, well, you can finish your movie, but you have to sell us Greystoke completely. And the moment they did, they hired another director for it. So by the time the film was finished, he didn't want his name on it. He was heartbroken by the entire project, and he ended up giving the screenplay credit to his dog, P.H. Vazic. And an article about that mentioned that for directors, they had to use one accepted substitute, and that was Alan Smithy which I found mind-boggling that anyone would ever not want credit on a movie, any movie, even a terrible movie. Yes, that, and, and like, it's funny, when you're 15, 17, you're like, God, why would anybody want to take their name off of a movie? And Drew, you're like, you're 47 now, let me ask you this, can you see why someone would want to take their name off a movie? Scott, my IMDB page has a screenplay credit for Fart the Movie. Yes, <laughs> yes, I can understand why somebody would like to take their name off a film. Absolutely. You know what, though, uh, the the uh, what I found really interesting, and I'm sure you and I both did our like Wikipedia and beyond research for this, because although we both know a good deal about this in practical matter measures, I didn't know much about the actual history, the the origination, uh, the origin is by a better word of Alan Smithy, and it was a uh, an apparently like you mentioned an amiable amiable conflict between directors Robert Totten and Don Siegel on Death of a Gunfighter. And uh, apparently that was what created what I found interesting is that film came out in 1969. According to Wikipedia, there were no examples of Alan Smithy being credited throughout the 70s at all. Yeah, it well, it just wasn't necessary. I think, um, you know, the, the 70s was such a um, director driven decade that I think a lot of what happened was um, even on crazy experimental stuff. 
studios were more than happy to, to give the credit to people. And there were no, and even on the fights that happened, I think there was a sense that films were very personal to a lot of filmmakers and they were going to get their name on them and they were going to battle for their baby. Um, I think the 80s are a much more um, business-driven decade in a lot of ways. So it doesn't terribly surprise me that a lot of these movies, when you look at them, are movies that don't feel like terribly personal films. Let, let, let's uh, let's run through some of them real quick and just tell me, or you will both uh, rattle off like what we know about these films, either of their quality or lack thereof, or maybe if we know some of the history of why uh, the, the name was chosen, okay? How about, what do you know of City and Fear, Drew? Do you know anything on that one? City and Fear, if I'm not mistaken, was a television film, and I I remember when it aired. I actually remember the title. I never saw it, um, but it was one of those movies that uh, that I remember the title because my dad watched everything that sounded like that, and so that was that was one that stuck in there as a title. But no, never seen it. Uh, I'm just uh, again stealing from Wikipedia, but it's David Jansen in his last film. Yeah, that that would make sense. He was a huge Jansen fan. But yeah, Judd Taylor, the director, said he removed his name from the film, uh, quote, after I left, the producers filmed four more point-blank murders without asking me, and I was offended. That's totally fair. I, I think if there, I honestly believe if there's any substantial change to your film where there's some element of it that you suddenly find genuinely offensive or off-putting that you would not include in your work, I 100% believe you should be able to take your name off it. Yeah, I've never seen that one. Uh, but again, yeah, if, if I directed a film and then I saw the final cut and it had like a bunch of really disgusting stuff that I didn't make, uh, that I didn't shoot, uh, who I doubt I, I don't know. I, I would not be happy. But uh, it's, it's fascinating to think that, yeah, you would take your name off of a finished film. Uh, but, you know, it, it's an interesting idea. Now, I, I didn't really uh, a, discover who Alan Smithy was until a film that you and I have discussed before, and it's Student Bodies. And uh, it's because producer Michael Ritchie took his name off the film. Um, and uh, it, usually it's a director who would do that. But Michael Ritchie obviously would direct many other, go on to direct many other films. And I believe he was originally scheduled to direct this. Uh, I still don't know much about the history of Student Bodies. And, uh, you know, it's it's like it's from 1920 and you can't get any information about student bodies. I've got to imagine with Michael Ritchie, that was a tone thing because Ritchie's work was fairly highbrow. Even his comedy stuff is comedies like The Candidate and Smile. He's not really a lowbrow guy. And student bodies is so aggressively, cheerfully lowbrow and kind of goofy. And I, I've just got to imagine there's an embarrassment factor for, for Richie. It doesn't feel like a movie. It feels because Mickey Rose, the guy who directed it, that was a favor that was done within the business, like getting him that gig. And I just got to feel, and it feels like Richie was servicing an earlier version of that thing that was not the thing that finally got made. So, yeah, when when he cut and ran, that led to for years the rumor that he had directed the movie and wanted his name off of it. And that's not true. It really was Mickey Rose who directed. Yep. Uh, uh, back here to Wiki. Uh, Mickey Rose wrote and directed the film. Jerry Belson offering additional material. However, Michael Ritchie was placed on set as an overseeing producer to guide Rose should he need it. Some sources say that Ritchie was actually the co-director writer and had to take Alan Smithy credit due to a strike by the Writers Guild. Others maintain that he took said credit to distance himself from the project. Mickey Rose was and is also a WGA member and received full credit. This would seem to debunk the union problem rumors. Well, yeah, and Smithy has nothing to do with the WGA, so I don't know how that rumor would work. They can't actually assign that credit. 
And again, I, that was to be taken from Wikipedia. I don't yeah. want anyone to think that I was quite that erudite. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I really just think you're right. I think that Michael Ritchie was a producer on the thing, had his uh, own successes, had his own screenplays and directing jobs and said, well, I, I'm, I'm moving along in my own direction. I don't necessarily want this infantile teen sex horror comedy wrapped around my neck while I'm trying to make my the producers was probably what he was trying. Uh, the survivors is probably what he was working on at that point. Um, so, yep, yeah, yep. That's student bodies. And it is a a kind of a ground zero for Alan Smithy as far as uh, 80s nerds go. Drew, let's take a pause for a second. Let's just take a break from this show. And how are you? How are you? I'm okay. I'm good. Yeah. I'm uh, Hi. yeah. How's your book selling? Uh, it's doing good. Uh, I am preparing the next one, which uh, I don't think I've said what it's about yet, but it's a uh, it's going to be about the two Blade Runner films. So uh, mm, I have not. Uh, what what specifically? Just well, I haven't written anything spoilery about the second film. Like Warner Brothers was so up our ass when we were reviewing that movie to be careful and not talk about anything. I. I, there's a million things in Blade Runner 2049 I want to talk about, and especially how they folded that first film into it, because I'm so... I, I've seen it, I don't know, four or five times now, and I find the f- construction of Blade Runner 2049 fascinating. Interesting. Yeah, it's a pretty... I, I can't wait. Like, that's one that I've been wanting to dig into. I, I really did. I liked uh, Blade Runner sequel very much, but I only saw it the once, and I'm fully prepared to, you know, dive back into it, but... Uh, one thing I've noticed, Drew, working on this podcast kind of prevents you from doing like free time movies. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, the next three months that we have, we're we're at the point right now where we're doing the research for September, October, November, and December of '83. And between September, October, and November, there's about seventy five films. Oh man, I'm not lying. September is is it's daunting. You know, it's like that's how I, I feel like we're actually doing a show that's interesting or of substance or worthwhile in some ways, because we're putting a lot of work into it. All right. There are lots of great podcasts that that two or three people can sit down and riff for an hour. And maybe you and I could do that in the future. But this show has taken so much work. And every time I'm like, do I'm going to watch another movie before 2 a.m.? Yeah. I uh, And it's like I just remember how many people like the show and I'm great. I'm happy to keep going. It's it's. Um, it's time consuming. I wouldn't call it difficult, but it is time consuming. Well, and it's funny because there's stuff now that that we're getting to that I have. I if I get an itch to watch something that's from the '80s, I'll wait now because I know that it's going to come up. Yep. When we get to that uh-huh. point. so I put off the big chill for a while and then just sat down with Lisa and watched it. And I'm really glad I did because then it became special when I finally got to it and I was ready for it. Oh, I can't. Uh, th- is there any other ones? I when we watched Diner and talked about it. I was this close to re- rewatching Tin Men and because I love that movie. Or let me, let me clarify. I remember loving that movie. I, my guess is you'll still probably. I haven't seen Tin Men either. I bought it. I tracked the DVD down like a year ago just so we have it when we get to 87. And yeah, I can't wait. Yeah. So I'm like, there were a few times in the last few months. So I was like, tonight's going to Tin Men. And I said, no, you got 83 to deal with, asshole. You can't watch Tin Man because you got to watch Space Hunter Adventures in the fucking Forbidden Zone. <laughs> well, listen, you know, looping this back, this conversation back to what we're talking about, there, there are, there's a film that we're going to be watching for 1984 that I'm really curious about, not because I think it's a good film. I don't remember it working at all, but because I want to go through now and see what seams I can find in it. And it's City Heat, the the uh, Richard Benjamin film, 
which Blake Edwards wrote as Kansas City Blues back in the 70s. It was a script he used to kind of hip pocket and carry around and very personal. Julie Andrews always said it was one of her favorite things he ever wrote. She wanted him to make it. And so when he cast Clint Eastwood and uh, Burt Reynolds together, that was because he was like, okay, this is going to be two giant icon movie stars. He had his first meeting with them, sat down, told Clint Eastwood what he wanted from him, and walking out of the meeting, it was just Eastwood and Reynolds walking across the Warner back lot. And Reynolds looked over at Eastwood and said, so I guess we're not making a movie with Blake Edwards. And Eastwood said, yeah, absolutely not. Like whatever he said to him really rattled Clint Eastwood, who ended up getting him fired off the film. So it became a Richard Benjamin movie. But there was a little bit of shooting. There was they got a little bit into it. And so Edwards couldn't take his name off as writer and he didn't get any credit as director. So he's just credited as Sam O. Brown, which fans of the podcast will recognize as SOB, which is his all purpose. Whenever the industry bones him, that's his expression. Dude, did 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 Blake Edwards ever accomplish something quietly? Nope. Good God. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I'm excited to see that again because I want to look at it now and see if I can pick out any of the Edwards DNA in it. Drew, here's an interesting little tidbit. Yeah. Uh, most of the times, well, we've mentioned Michael Ritchie, who who did, who smithied as a producer. Uh, but now we're going to r- briefly talk about a second AD who uh, who understandably. Yeah. yeah. Now, why don't you uh, tell the story, if you would, of uh, second AD Anderson House? Well, Anderson House was uh, second AD on Twilight Zone, the movie. And he um, he was putting really if you go read the book about outrageous conduct, the book about the uh, the Twilight Zone accident, he got put in a tough spot on that movie where uh, there were some labor practices that he was asked to circumnavigate. And there were some things that went on that were not his responsibility, but they got dumped on him. And I think living with that accident and living with what happened, and especially as second AD, he was involved in the, the wrangling of the kids, the children that were killed in that film. There has to be a great deal of personal trauma attached to that and wanting your name off that movie man i can't i i'm amazed that movie doesn't just say alan smithy alan smithy alan smithy all the way through because i mean it it's such a night i know one of the guys that was in the helicopter that landed on vic morrow and still i know still carries it with him so yeah it's understandable that this guy would want his name off yeah i did not uh i guess uh, as a kid i'd never really dug that deep into the credits and i'm sure this is mentioned in the book outrageous conduct but i did not know that uh this gentleman took a pseudonym or took the the pseudonym on the, for his work yeah um all right so then we moved to 1985 and there's a really awful uh, uh <laughs> really <laughs> awful like what is it doctors and interns sex farce yeah uh called stitches and that 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 film got the Alan Smithy, which all right, no big, not not that interesting. But Drew, do you know what makes it interesting? I don't with Stitches. Tell me with Stitches. The director is a gentleman named Rod Holcomb. Yep, who TV would guy. go on to be very prolific in television, and he won an Emmy for directing the finale of ER. Oh wow! Okay, and he took his name off a really bad sex farce in a hospital. There you called go. Stitches. So there maybe it was go. just like, I don't want the people I work with on ER to see this movie and know I directed it. I don't know. Anybody um, out there like Stitches? Send us a note. We won't be covering it until 1985, but I, I remember not liking it. No, not good. Not good. Um, this next one uh, is interesting because the guy is genuinely a pretty great American filmmaker. And this movie was one of those movies that, I, I mean, it got... 
this is right around the time that I started really like paying attention to the industry. Not just the films, but the industry side of things. And this movie got chased around the schedule for a long time and was one of those films that they cut and they cut and they recut and they kept trying to figure out how to make it work. And it was especially upsetting because the movie this guy made right before it was The Pope of Greenwich Village, which is a fucking amazing movie. This is the director this is the director of Cool Hand Luke. This is the director of The Laughing Policeman with Walter Matthau and Pocket Money for God's sake. I mean a really terrific director and the movie Let's Get Harry just plain never worked. Yeah, in my research I've not seen this one in I don't think I have ever have because I may have seen it as a kid but I think I saw Uncommon Valor and thought it was this. It barely got released. Like if you if yeah, if you saw it, you saw it at one of its very few theatrical gigs. No, yeah, I think I remember seeing it on the VHS shelf, but never rented it. But there is a story credit by Sam Fuller. Yeah. On Let's yeah. Get Harry. Yep. Uh, as you could probably guess, Let's Get Harry is a bunch about a bunch of veterans who go back to Vietnam to rescue a friend of theirs. And his name is? Uh, Phil? Harry. Harry, Yes. Uh, I'm uh, yeah. I don't think I've ever seen this, Drew, and I know it's hard to track down. I know you you were able to track us down a copy, thank God. Yeah. But do you know who plays the titular Harry? I do, but I remember he got was he cut from the film or Mark Harmon apparently. And it was, and I I think his role was greatly reduced, which was part of the problem. Was they that a movie called Let's Get Harry, where Harry doesn't work, was part of the issue. Drew, let me ask you this: in any context, is that a good title? No. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Scott Weinberg and Drew McQueenie with Change Your Title. Change Your Fucking Title. But no, this movie has like your buddy, Rick Rosevich. It's got Ben Johnson. It's got Gary Busey, Robert Duvall, and Glenn Fry. Yep. What? Yep. All right, I'm looking forward to this. Do you have any, do you, I don't know, uh, uh, the research does not indicate why Mr. Rosenberg took his name off the film. So, uh, I don't. You I know. think because I think because uh, all the post production hardships, like I said, it got bounced a lot before it finally came out. And as I understand, lots of test screenings, lots of cutting, and there may just come a point where something's been cut so many times that you don't feel like it represents you anymore. Like you're you're disconnected from it. I will also say, as a horror fan, Scott, I'm really curious to see what you think of David Hess in the movie. Ah, good point. Thank you. Now, Drew, let's move on to an Alan Smithy film that I actually saw in theaters. Really? Yeah. John Cryer in Morgan Stewart's Coming Home. Yep. Um, I did not see it in the theater. I saw it on home video, but uh, I remember when it came out. It played our theater even. It, it, it's a troublemaker uh, who makes trouble for his stuffy politician father. Yeah, it's definitely they were trying to figure out what to do with John Cryer post Pretty in Pink. And clearly that guy was the breakout thing from Pretty in Pink. So, yeah, this was his. Okay, well, what do we do with the next here? He's going to be the wacky kid who's the center of the film. And uh, yeah, it went it. This was also one that got bounced from one release date to another to another and then finally snuck into theaters. It's got the great Paul Gleason. Yep. Uh, Lynn Redgrave and, and uh, not um, aside from it just being very not good not really sure why the there were two directors they were uh, Paul Aaron and Terry Windsor uh, team I don't know they took their name off it uh, and uh, I, I'm sure there's more information out there we could ask John Cryer 
Let's get John Cryer on the phone, Drew. That's important. I think let's get John Cryer in here and then we'll have those questions for him. Now, am I am I going to, when we revisit Morgan Stewart's coming home in 1987, am I going to think it's uh, better than I remember or unwatchable? Uh, you are, you are, it's not going to go well. You remember this film well? Uh, I, I've seen, within the last couple of years, I've seen about 15 minutes of it because Toshi found it airing somewhere and stopped because he recognized Ducky. And the 15 minutes I saw were enough to convince me who it's going to be a tough set. Uh, respect to your young son for recognizing Ducky and not, recommend, uh, not recognizing him as that guy from My Two Dads. Yeah, nope. Nope. All right, Drew, what do we got next? Uh, next up, <laughs> one that I actually saw in the theater because it played the theater that I managed. Wait a second. You saw uh-huh. a Sherman Hemsley movie in the theater? I did. I I was the projectionist that had to test the print, so I saw Ghost Fever. Ghost Fever. Most people don't know Ghost Fever is not a prequel to Jungle Fever. A lot of people think it is. It's not right. Uh, this is this is. If we find this one, I will be flabbergasted. Um, it is a Sherman Hemsley uh, detective ghost comedy set in the old South and. Uh, it is every bit as awful as that sounds like it's going to be. Directed by one Lee Madden. According yes. to Wikipedia, he is known for directing the Vegas biker film Hell's Angels 69, starring the original Oakland's Hell's Angels. His other films include biker film Angel Unchained, horror flick The Night God Screamed, and Ghost Fever, a comedy where he is credited as Alan Smithy. Yeah, That's- all exploitation fare. Like, yeah. and I'm Right, but no, I, I only read that. I read that to ask a question. If you made like Hell's Angels exploitation movies, <laughs> how bad does Ghost Fever have to be for you to take your name off it? Well, and my and my guess is it was a case of like horrifying chemistry because can you imagine? Okay, this guy is really good at Hell's Angels biker movie. Let's get him to do a Southern Sherman Hemsley comedy. That's got a lot of racial material that's really tricky to navigate. Uh, yeah, no. Yeah, no, here, uh, just the first, the the, uh, the opening paragraph of the synopsis. Uh, Buford, Sherman Hemsley, and Benny, Luis Avalos, are two Greendale County, Georgia police officers sent to serve an eviction notice to a historic plantation. Two ghosts named Andrew Lee, a former owner of the plantation, and Jethro, a former slave, decide to prevent their old home from being foreclosed upon. So basically, it's racist Beetlejuice. It's racist Beetlejuice. (laughs) Yeah, it's it really is. Um, And here's the thing. Louis Avalos, you know him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's the guy from the electric company that we grew up watching. Oh, Luis. Yeah. Yeah. So when when this came to our theater and I realized it's Luis from the electric company and Mr. Jefferson in redneck Beetlejuice, like it is so much worse than that sounds. So yeah, it's it is uh, it's just not good. And this is when I stood in and watched the entire thing, just dumbfounded that it was even playing in our theater. Ghost Fever. I remember seeing the VHS cover. That's pretty much it. I've never seen it. Uh, but now, oh, the fact that it played in your theater, Drew. Yeah. is uh, precedent, thank you very much. It indicates that it played in theaters, which means you're going to have to revisit Ghost Fever. Yeah, I know. Yeah, and our theater, the, the Regency Square in uh, right outside Tampa in Florida was, man, I don't know who booked us. I don't know what deal they had. I don't know what steak dinners they were being given, but we booked 
every unreleasable piece of crap from that decade. I, I, I starting to think that there are certain like dumping grounds, certain theaters in certain rural areas oh. where when they have they're contractually obligated to release a film on 12 theaters. The distributors have a big red circle around these 12 theaters. And one of them's in Nowheresville, Louisiana. One of them's in bumfuck Florida. You know what I mean? And they're all like the least I'm, amount of damage that we can do. Yeah, we must have had that deal with uh, whoever the distributor was for Dino De Laurentiis, the DEG, because if it came from DEG, we played it. If it came from New Horizon, we played it. If it came, like, it's crazy. I still, to this day, remember that a film played in the theater near me. This is the same theater that played um, E.T. for somewhere between 11 and 13 months. It was somewhere in that area. Okay, this movie played School Spirit. Wow. Yeah. With Robert with Robert Ginty. I'm not even gonna look it up. Robert Ginty in school spirit. Yeah, yeah. Kid dies and comes back as a ghost and heads straight where? Women's locker room? Wink wow. I like yep. boobs. Drew, uh let, let, let's tackle this one, the next uh, Alan Smithy classic. But first, let's take a sidebar to discuss other podcasts that you and I like. Drew, what's a podcast that you've listened to lately that's not 80s all over? Okay, I am addicted right now to my brother, my brother, and me. I can't, I cannot get enough of those guys. Took me a little, I, I'm not going to lie, when it comes to like different or strong or unique comedic voices, and I mean literal voices, it takes a little while to get into something. So when I don't like a comedic podcast, I always give it three or four episodes because I'm thinking... And that's exactly right. These guys are an acquired taste. Tell tell our listeners why they're so funny. It's just three brothers who uh, pretend to do an advice show. And I say pretend because the advice they give is dangerously insane. Um, and it's just it's that chemistry that you have when you've been with somebody your whole life and you know how to make that person laugh. And to listen to three brothers who are very funny individually, but constantly trying to make each other laugh while they answer these insane Yahoo questions and Google questions. And uh, it's such a entertaining show. They also have a spinoff where they play D and D with their dad. That is one of the sweetest, smartest that one I've gaming heard. oriented podcasts I can name. It's so terrific. I think our illustrious producer, Bobby is the gentleman who turned me on to adventure. Is it adventure zone is great. adventure zone. Thank you. I almost yeah. said adventure time, uh, but yeah, that I was into that first I also uh, want to mention a fairly obvious one, but it's a new movie podcast starring our friends Amy Nicholson and Paul Shear. It is called yep. Unspooled, and it's basically they find a cla- they they tackle a an undisputed classic of I believe American only. Yes, I believe American only films, and they dissect it for an hour. And uh, Paul is a very funny, astute film brain, and Amy Nicholson is a fantastic film critic. So uh, I think that's a lot of fun. Um, they don't need our help. They're hugely popular already, but that's a great show. <laughs> uh, what else? Any another, uh, any others? Let, let, I just love to sh- spread the love. I always love the Flophouse. I would right now highly advise you, if you have not, go find the Andy Daly Podcast Pilot Project podcast, which is a mouthful to say, but the premise is Andy Daly and Matt Gourley, the enormously talented, insanely funny Matt Gourley, uh, they have gone through all of the Earwolf stacks of submissions. 
And each week they play you a pilot that somebody sent them to put on the air to decide whether or not that pilot should be picked up. The gag is, of course, that every one of them is an Andy Daly character and he and Matt Gurley, like, creating this entire world for each podcast. (laughs) They are unreal. And each uh, one's like two hours of just brilliant comedy. Uh, Matt Gorley, most people will know from I Was There Too, which is also an excellent podcast about terrific uh, uh, character actors and uh, bit players and extras and people who worked on giant, giant films. That's a great podcast. Uh, I want always want to throw out some love for my standbys. When I'm feeling low, I listen to either The Flop House or We Hate Movies. They cheer me up. Um, lately, I have discovered uh, an old po- an older podcast, not very old, called We'll See You in Hell with comedian Joe DeRosa and comedy writer Patrick Walsh, who I used to be a colleague of, he used to write for us at Cinematical, and uh, they uh, talk about a horror movie every week and are very funny and random and just uh, bantery, good banter. And finally, I'd like to say on the Maximum Fun HQ Network, please check out Switchblade Sisters, hosted by April Wolf. Uh, April is a new member of the LA Film Critics Association. She was formerly with the LA Weekly before the LA Weekly was bought by right-wingers who have destroyed it. Uh, She's an unbelievably smart critic, ferocious person, and I think a great podcaster, somebody with just energy for the subject, who every week finds people who are not working in the mainstream, artists who deserve the attention, and man, does she give the love when she loves something. I, uh, I have subscribed Two Switchblade Sisters, and I have not listened to one episode yet, but I it's like a treasure chest waiting in my phone. I love April on Twitter, and I am looking forward to delving into that podcast. All-around badass human being who deserves our support. Cool, cool. All right, so now, now we move back to a film that I know virtually nothing about, but it does star Scott Baio and Christopher Plummer. And it came out in theaters because it played by theater. What is I Love New York? Uh, all I know... Because it was a Scott Bayo movie, and I never wanted to watch it. Um, I walked in and out, and it appeared to be a sort of navel-gazing story of an artist and photographer living in New York, made by an artist and photographer who decided Scott Bayo was the perfect person to play him in his real-life story. Hey, Scott Bayo has been the muse for thousands of people. How dare you? Thousands. At least hundreds of them. Uh, and that ju- that person to which you were referring is one Gianni Bozacci. Gianni Bozacci, who uh, is a, uh, it says here at Wiki, a 1987 American semi-autobiographical com- comedy drama written and directed by fine art photographer Gianni Bozacci as Alan Smithy. Well, what's crazy is it's so clearly, just from the pieces I saw, it's so clearly autobiographical. It's so clearly, this is my life. This is me. I'm this really cool guy. This is the light. Can you imagine making that movie that's a, a vanity project start to finish to begin with and then taking your name off of it? Like how much did yeah, you Yeah, wait a minute. How do you take your name off an autobiographical movie? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, that's that's you really missed the target, man. Um, there's a couple of other real uh, real quick things I wanted to, to uh, touch on. Yeah. I, my favorite use of the Alan Smithy name ever. Can I guess? Well, yeah. Is it a certain Frank Herbert adaptation? It is. Go on, and, go, go. And I love this because it's the only example I can think of where they pushed something closer to what somebody had in mind. And his reaction was he lost his 
shit on them. Um, when David when David Lynch directed Dune, uh, he had a much longer original cut. And he had a lot of ambition for how he wanted the first act of that film to go. And by the time they got to theaters, he had lost a lot of fights on that film. And they really the the beginning of that movie. If you haven't seen it in a while, uh, Virginia Madsen steps out talks to you for 45 straight minutes of exposition, and then they go into the first scene. It's kind of insane. And they had to hand out glossary charts just in case you would get lost. There was originally supposed to be this giant prologue that they never let him film. So when they went to television, somebody got the idea of, well, it doesn't really fit in a two-hour window. It doesn't really fit in a four-hour window unless we do this to it. So they did what they did with Superman and some other films. They took chunks of stuff that hadn't been used and without any input from David Lynch, slapped it all back together. So when they showed it to him and said, this is the TV cut of your film, he broke like it was hell on earth for him. And he insisted they take his name off, even though so clearly it is more David Lynch stuff represented on screen. But it's without any finesse. It's without any fine tuning. He never got a chance to go in and finish it. And if anything, it must have felt like a slap in the face to him to see all this stuff that he fought over, fought over with them and lost the fight on, then just jam back in there haphazardly in storyboard form. Yep. Uh, according to Wikipedia, his, he used Smithy as the director's credit on the network version, but used the name Judas Booth uh, for his screenwriting credit and Judas Booth being a conflagration of Judas Iscariot and John Wilkes Booth. Nobody's ever accused Mr. Lynch of being subtle when Not he's upset. Subtle. And, uh, yeah, yeah, he was he was pretty hot about that one. Uh, there's lots of there's a couple other interesting ones, but but uh, do we have any more in the '80s, Drew? There is. There's one other that I liked in the '80s that uh, was interesting to me because there was a short story by Harlan Ellison that was published in a collection first, and then in Twilight Zone magazine, and it was a pretty great Harlan Ellison short story. Um, when Twilight Zone came back to television, they adapted it. And it was a big deal because Harlan was going to write the screenplay. And Harlan is one of those guys who has notoriously clashed with directors over and over and over and with studios. And he's very hard to keep happy. And so Harlan is typically the one that takes his name off of things. He was furious because although he wrote the thing for Glenn Turman, who did end up playing one of the two roles in the piece, the terrific character actor Glenn Turman, uh, the other role went to Danny Kaye. Ellison will not publicly speak about Danny Kaye's performance, but his silence is very focused. He is very careful not to say that he detests it, although he clearly vigorously does. So what's crazy is you would expect that him being upset and him being Harlan Ellison, he would take his name off. Somehow, it's Gil Cates, the director of the episode, who changed his name, and it's still credited to Harlan. It's still Harlan Ellison screenplay. But it must have been such a freaking nightmare dealing with Ellison being upset about the casting that Cates in the end just didn't take the credit for it. And Cates is one of those guys, he'll take credit for anything. So it's really a shocking uh, use of the credit. Interesting. I did not know that one. That episode, by the way, if you're curious, is called Paladin of the Lost Hour. All right. Great. I've not seen it. Uh what, what's interesting, Drew, is that sometimes uh, directors who were credited properly will sometimes remove their name from the network television or airline versions. Um, as uh, I knew a few of these, but fair, I am also cheating. Um, what do we have? The, uh, William Friedkin on The Guardian took his name off that. Uh, Martin Brest took his name off of the airline version of Set Up a Woman. 
and Meet Joe Black, if I'm not mistaken. I think he's done it for everything. In fact, I'm not sure if Wikipedia has it, but I'd be curious to double-check the Midnight Run TV cut because he's notorious for those driving Yeah, Michael plays. Mann as well. He took his name off the TV versions of Heat and The Insider as well. Yeah. Uh, we'll run through some of the other ones in the 90s that might be uh, noteworthy, and then we can get into the film, the actual movie, that caused the demise of the fictional Alan Smithy. Uh, Rick Rosenthal... Took his name off of Birds 2, Land's End. Yeah. Well, and uh, God, what a thankless gig that must have been. I know that Solar Crisis was a gigantic budget Alan Smithy film. That was one where there was a lot of attention on that at the beginning of production. And then by the end of production, just an embarrassment that everybody wanted to be finished with. Yeah, that is a 1990 film. Also from 1990, a Cheech Marin comedy called The Shrimp on the Barbie by uh, Michael Gottlieb. Uh, but uh, what else do we have? Um, Hellraiser Bloodline. Wow. By uh, special effects master Kevin Yeager. Took his name off that. Um, but Drew, what? Uh, oh, and Senior Trip. National Lampoon Senior <laughs> Trip. Kelly, <laughs> Kelly Macon. Yeah. And I know that there was one that Dennis Hopper had. There was a there was for a time there was a movie of his that did. Yeah. But he eventually got his name back on the film because they gave it back to him. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, the the original Alan Smithy cut is gone forever. But Backfire is out there and is Backtrack. Once again a, backtrack yeah, is yeah. out there and is a Dennis Hopper movie again. Uh according to the research here, Cratch Fire, nineteen ninety, was originally released in theaters, directed by Dennis Hopper. I would it, not have remembered that title. Yeah. Catch fire. It's one word. I never wow. even cat that's terrible. Um so Drew, how did how did Alan Smithy end up being killed? Well, part of it was it, people started to get the joke. Like it became a joke within things. People started to make fun of it, and there were references to it. And um, I think once once the audience had been kind of wink wink tipped off to the notion that Alan Smithy wasn't a real person, um, then it became kind of uh, it, it became less functional for the DJ. The whole point was you weren't supposed to notice that this movie wasn't directed by an actual director. Um, I remember thinking in 96 when Burn Hollywood, an Alan Smithy film, Burn Hollywood Burn, when it then it came and went super quick. And yep. and then a director, Arthur Hiller, uh, had took his name off it and put Alan Smithy on it. I, everybody who follows this kind of stuff thinks, how is that not like a self-fulfilling promotion? How, how is yeah. that? But it's not. It's, yep. it, it is literally he wanted to make a movie about a, a director named Alan Smithy uh, who had trouble dealing with the fact that that was his real name as played by Eric Idle. And this thing is written by Joe Esterhaus. And Arthur Hiller was so disgusted with the final product. It wasn't a joke. He literally took his name off the Alan Smithy well, movie. Well, and this was and this was I can't imagine Arthur Hiller because I. I've I've met Arthur Hill. I've met Joe Esterhaus. I, this was the era where I was kind of working in town, and I, I met a lot of these people. And around the time that all this was happening, and Arthur Hiller always struck me as um, one of these genteel, soft-spoken, charming older Hollywood gentlemen who had been around for a long time and knew what he had done, and really didn't need to prove anything to anybody, and just had a, a really lovely presence to him. Whereas Joe Esterhaus, it was like being in a room with a, a badger that somebody had shot full of meth. It was just awful every single time. And the idea that you put Joe Esterhaus ostensibly in the creative control position on this movie, because it was his screenplay, it was his idea, he was the one that put everything together, it was his whole sort of energy. 
And on a comedy, definitely not Joe Esterhus's strong suit, and then put him in a room with Arthur Hiller. Like, I, how is that ever going to go well? How is that ever going to end in anything but tragedy and tears? Yeah, quote, quote, the film's creation set off a chain of events which would lead the Directors Guild of America to officially discontinue the Alan Smithy credit in 2000. The film's plot about a director attempting to disown a film eventually and ironically described the film's own production. Director Hiller requested that his name be removed after witnessing the final cut. Now, here's the weird part, Drew. I've seen it. It's a interesting curiosity value, but it's a terrible movie. It's just not funny. It's not even. It's not even a movie. It's. It is a. It is a showreel of smug movie stars showing up for an easy check. Yeah. Uh, but here's awful. the thing. I think the doc a documentary about the making and results of this movie would be interesting. <laughs> like, well, if they had just yeah, if they had just. Turn the camera one more degree to the left and, and gone one more step in breaking the reality of it. It would have been better. If, if I'm just saying that the life and death of Alan Smithy would be a very fun documentary and it would just end perfectly with the, the, the explaining how burn Hollywood burn literally killed the joke. Like oh, so talk about bad. like you, not just you killed the joke. So now you the WG, the director's guild since I think three or four years after this doesn't use it anymore. And as far as I know, the most, uh, the most well-known example of a director taking his name off a movie was, uh, Walter Hill, uh, for supernova. And he chose a different name and that name was Thomas Lee. Yeah. Well, and David O. Russell's done it since and a couple of other filmmakers. And I, it's not going to, I mean, there will be more cases of this where, I think, especially as we get into a more corporate world, you know, there was, uh, and you have cases of people getting sort of shuffled through these productions, two or three directors uh, going through. I I am not, uh, let me figure out how to get into this without making it sound like I'm attacking a producer because I'm not. Uh, you this weekend had a, th- a thread that sort of blew up on Twitter in which you were talking about how you wish there was less coverage of what goes on behind the scenes. And I I understand because I feel like people get hold of little bits of information and don't really understand the context or have anything to to compare it to to understand how that piece of information fits into a larger picture. And so you get things like what happened on Solo or what happened on Rogue One, and they get used as proof that someone isn't working or doing their job. Yeah, well, that's fact, what bothers me. Is these are just these are just parts of what's going to happen as you get into hundred and fifty million dollar corporate filmmaking. They're very they're going to be very protective because those assets are bigger than any individual filmmaker. If you want to be an individual and you never ever want anybody to give you notes or talk to you, man, go make your own shit. Well, my, my attitude is, yeah, my, my mentality has always been, if you want to do something uh, all on your own, in your own head, with no collaboration, write a novel. Uh, that That's what you can do by yourself. Uh, but if you want to, you know, if you want to make a film, you better be prepared to work with 75 or 80 people every day, some of whom you might not agree with. But I think I think you're going to see because there's going to be more situations like this because these films become incredibly important to these studios. So they're not going to be shy about protecting investments and moving one filmmaker off and another filmmaker on. But uh, just like here's here's my question, Drew, about Solo. Okay, sure. If Lord and Miller had been removed from the project and we didn't know 
Like it had just been like, what, what if the system was, we didn't know who directed a film until the first trailer came out. If that was right. the system, if they protected their filmmakers and, and the system was, we don't, that's part of the fun of a trailer is learning who's directing the new star Wars. Holy crap. It's Ron Howard. And we never knew that they got removed and their names are on there as executive producers. And like, I honestly believe that the reaction to the film would be slightly more positive. I truly believe that this damaged goods mentality hurts movies more than they deserve. I think it's I think that's been true for a long time. I think people seize on things and they decide that this is the story and it has very little to do with what they actually see on screen. And sometimes it does. Sometimes sure, all the behind the scenes troubles add up to a movie that just doesn't work. But a lot of times behind the scenes difficulties are simply part of the birthing process and some of your favorite movies probably weren't terribly fun to work on. Many, many great films have had big production problems. And my, my larger point is a production problem does not equal a shitty final product. That, that's like part of the process. Sometimes the process is smooth and wonderful and it has no bearing on the film is good or bad. Sometimes the process is terrible and the film turns out great. Like it just like a little knowledge is an obnoxious thing and I'm tired of it. I'm tired, tired, tired. Well, listen, I, uh, I, I certainly think that, um, in the end, what matters is the film, and the film lives a lot longer than these initial reactions and these initial stories and you know stuff like what we do where we go back in and we talk about production problems and stuff in the 80s or we take a film apart and we discuss it afterwards. Um, these are things that with time and with perspective, films just settle into their place. I think hype has become very, very tricky to navigate, and I think a lot of people get wound up about the wrong things and and studios don't do themselves any favors with the way they they give press access to stuff it's it's a very weird moment for fandom and you know we grew up at a time where there was a lot less of this so we've watched it kind of blossom and we've been responsible for some of it hell i am responsible for telling stories out of school that have probably hurt not even probably i'll take that back i've been responsible for printing stories that have hurt movies and i definitely bear some guilt for that i feel bad about it i think part of why i love this podcast and i love our audience and i love these conversations with you scott is because there's no stakes in whether something makes money right now these films are all on a shelf they all exist it's interesting how a film did. It's interesting if audiences went crazy for it or stayed away. That stuff is all contextually interesting. But I have no investment in it now. And what I'm not matters is it. the 97 minute film. That's what matters. All of the su- superfluous stuff about it didn't do well and director took his name off it and did that, do that. None of that matters. All that matters is what's on the f- what's in the movie. Just watch the two hour film. Like, forget all the other crap. And. Alan Smithy, I think, was part part of what happened with the Alan Smithy story. And one of the reasons that it stuck for so many film fans our age is it was a a peek at how things didn't work sometimes. And I think that that was not there. There was very little of that when we were young. Uh, There was very little real honest reporting about the business. And so I do feel like we got really excited by these little glimpses and peaks at at stuff that didn't work right. And then we got too into it and we, we tipped the scale in that direction. That's so, a good point. It's like the fandom almost became like, uh, you know, it, it, it reaches like an event horizon where it's like, we love the movies. And then two years later that has spilled over to, we own the movies. You better listen to us. 
And that's that that second part is what you want to avoid. You know, if you love films, you respect filmmakers, you respect the process, you, you know, and the more you hear about, oh, that movie that I loved, they lost their director two weeks in. Oh, that movie I really liked. That movie bombed and didn't make, you know, any like lost a lot of money. Oh, and then the older you get, you realize none of that matters. What matters is how a film makes you feel. What, you know, like that's all that matters. Well, listen, I uh, I I'm fascinated by this. I love the fact that this was his one real decade of work where uh, I think filmmakers were trying to figure out what their role was in the new Hollywood. And I think the frequency of Alan Smithy's name popping up is a sign that there were some growing pains. So, uh, yeah, well worth it, man. Yep, and uh, I believe that Drew and I would both strongly recommend that you do not dig up Burn Hollywood Burn and Alan Smithy film, <laughs> no, uh, even no. though we both agree that this topic is endlessly fascinating, and if and when somebody makes a feature documentary about this whole story, we'll be the first, but if you can make it all the way through Burn Hollywood Burn, get back to us on Twitter uh, at 80sallover and give us your review. We will retweet any reviews that you can find that you that you have uh, that you write for us on uh, Twitter. So thank you so much to every one of our patrons. The only reason you're listening to this episode is because you support us financially and we are eternally grateful. Well, maybe not eternally. I'll say for the rest of my life. All right. For the rest of my life, I am grateful to you people. <laughs> Yeah, thank you very much, guys. And as always, please spread the word. Tell people about the show. You guys uh, really are the reason that it continues to grow and uh, that people keep finding it. So we appreciate that as well. Uh, we have some cool bonus content coming up for you soon. We have some great months ahead. And then very, very soon, we are going to turn the corner and start 1984. And oh, my God, I'm so excited for that. 